Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series, the number one podcast for brain injury and concussion resources. I am Amy Selmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. And today I'm going to be talking to Cheryl Kemp about to be different is not to be guilty. Really excited to dive into her story today. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it through buymeacoffee.com slash emyz. Hello, everyone. I am Amy Zellmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury one podcast at a time. Those of you who don't know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Goodman Project, and I am author of Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal, which is available on Amazon. Additionally, I am editor-in-chief of the Brain Health Magazine, and you can get your free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. You can learn more about me and the podcast at facesoftbi.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Amy Zellmer. I also invite you to join my private Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. Today, my guest is Cheryl Kempf, and Cheryl is a survivor of brain injury in 1994 and PTSD in 2012. Her advocacy work has focused on the passing of state and federal legislation that requires law enforcement to be trained to recognize brain injury and PTSD, known as H.R. 2992 in the 117th Congressional Session, currently expanding her imprint, talking about the personal side of her journey. Welcome to the podcast, Cheryl. I'm so happy to have you here. Hi, Amy. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Well, I have known Cheryl, I don't know, eight years, maybe nine. It feels feels like forever. Um, Yes, it does. (laughs) But that's a good thing. Exactly. And uh, we met through our mutual advocacy work in Washington, D.C., and I also met you when I um, spoke at the conference down in Texas, um, which is where you are located, Austin, Texas. Um, So it's fun to have you on the podcast, and um, I'm, I'm happy to share your story today because Um, Yours is probably one of the more important messages um, that I've encountered. Um, So let's start, first of all, talking about your brain injury in 1994. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, I was in a hospital here in Austin, and they had me sedated for bad headaches, And they put me on my back and I aspirated, which I threw up and then Mm. choked and I technically, technically died. And when I woke up a week later, which they told my husband I wasn't going to, when I woke up, Mm. my right hand and foot were numb and that has never come back. So I'm live a pretty full life given all that, but that, that has, has remained after a year of therapy and, and everything like that. And 
I went home and picked my life back up as best I could. Yeah. And and how old were you roughly when that happened to you? 35. Yeah, so real young. Yeah. Um, and so you went, you know, I hear this all the time. People go in for one or one thing or another, and then something happens and they end up with a TBI or acquired brain injury. And so um, it happens, you know, and our medical system isn't perfect. And I'm curious, so at the time, that, so this is the 90s, did they acknowledge at the time that it was a brain injury? No, well, they had to acknowledge it was anoxia because they had to resuscitate me, but they didn't find it. My husband had come to the hospital mid-afternoon to see me, and when he walked into the room, I was blue. I had mm. coded, as I said before, so he called the nurse, and I, of course, don't remember any of that, and they did tell him I wasn't going to wake up at all, so he had begun wow. looking into care, which, as you recall, Long-term brain injury care in Texas is a very scarce commodity, so most people end up in nursing homes, which don't really mm -hmm. do to the brain injury level of care. But right. that's pretty much. And then I did wake up. I woke up. The nurse was doing something, and I woke up and told her something hurt and scared her to death. They didn't think I was going to be able to speak again, and here I am. <laughs> so it took quite a while it took a long time to, I couldn't walk, I couldn't cut my food. It was pretty much a complete trip back through rehabilitation to see what parts of me were going to recover and which, which were not. And did, I assume you already had your daughter at that time. I had both daughters, yes. But, okay, yep, yep. So you they were also a mom. <laughs> right, yeah. they were seven and five at the time. Gosh, yeah. Yeah. They're older now. Yeah, a lot older. <laughs> but, yes, they yeah. watched the whole journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay, so that was 94. Um, yes. When did you become involved with your Brain Injury Alliance in in Texas? In Texas, I was in the elevator. There was a lady named Betty Beckworth who ran the Office of Acquired Brain Injury for what was in the Department of State Health Services, and I was helping her carry some things. She had too much to carry. I was helping her in the elevator, and she mentioned what she did. That was the first idea I had, and that was in 19, gosh, that was in 2007. So it had been Oh, wow, so quite years. a while. Yeah, we didn't know anything. We didn't get out of the hospital with, with anything. Uh, we just went home and kind of made up a plan, you know, to walk and to do things. But uh, that's how I began. I began on the committees, and then I ended up chairing the Traumatic Brain Injury Advisory Council, which was the advisory council for the state on brain injury until 2014. And in 2014, I had to get off the council because the what the rest of the we're going to talk about happened. And I couldn't mm -hmm. chair the council and speak on my own behalf in front of the legislature. Sure, sure. And so it was very much a chance meeting that you even found. It was very much. Wow. It was. Wow. I didn't and we realize still, that was so serendipitous. 
it was and we still struggle with people knowing we call it siloing here in texas meaning all your information is in one area and it doesn't get out well so my boss said i was the consumer we did not get served um when i told him what i you know who i had met in the elevator and began taking an hour a week to go down and work in the brain injury office and I think we still struggle with that to a certain degree. I think a lot of places mm-hmm. do getting that information to the survivors. Yeah, so they can yeah. use that. Yeah, and Texas, Texas and California, you know, are both states that are just so big and so exactly. populated. Mhm. Yeah. So, okay, Cheryl, let's let's move forward now to um 2012. Um and I will let you share Uh, what happened. Okay. I was chair of the council here in Austin, and we used to have our committee meetings and then our council meetings once a quarter, but it would be an entire day, worked on a committee and then still chaired. So it was a Friday, um, and I chaired Went to dinner with a friend because we had moved to San Antonio to catch up with he and his wife. Headed home out Highway 290, which goes west out of Austin into the hill country. And as I hit Dripping Springs, I got pulled over for I don't know what reason. And I dropped my license when I handed it, my driver's license when I handed it to the officer out the window. And I often do because that's my right, my numb hand. And I said, the uh i said and i ha- i had a brain id card i still have the very card and i said i'm cheryl i'm a traumatic brain or a brain injury survivor and if my husband's name and number are on that card if you'll call him he can explain that i drop things a lot and he said no ma'am dropping things is a sign you're you know inebriated and so i got arrested for dui yeah. so when they arrested me they also roughed me up quite badly and we have a lot Mm -hmm. of pictures and stuff like that they did not turn the audio off so we had no camera but you could hear me being beaten and toward the end of the recording which we got by open records request you can hear me say beating me is not going to make me drunk and my husband of course was you know overwhelmed by this and he asked me he said did you have to say that and I said, I think I did. I said, I think that was that one little flame of independence that would not let that officer win. <laughs> so I can't say it was the smartest thing I ever did. It's on the tape, so I, I definitely did it. Um, and I spent a night in jail. I have a mugshot and a record. So in Texas, DUIs are not easily forgiven, especially not in Hayes County where it happened. And so after two years and four months in the summer of 2014 I'd been through two attorneys and my older daughter had gotten out of law school during this time and she said you need to get we need a plea deal you need out from under this case because I wasn't doing very well with wondering if I was going to get you know put in jail and really stressed so and you can't talk about a case that's open so I could Mm -hmm. not even share it with anybody that could be supportive like the council or anybody So I took a plea deal effective like September 7th of 2014. We went on and planned that because I had already decided 
my daughter is the one who said, let's win bigger than the courtroom. That's where the idea for working on a law, so it wasn't just one case in one courtroom, it was a law across the state of Texas. And the next day I was in my state legislator's office with this long story because I had taken the plea deal so that I technically closed the case. And I was and in Elliot Nation. I'm sorry. By a plea deal, you essentially pled guilty, correct? I did plead. I did plead guilty. And yes. then, then the yes. thing is, if you successfully complete probation, they remove, they replace your guilty plea with probation, which is an alternative sentence. So, I will tell you that when the judge, whose name is uh, Robert, I really Robert Eptegrove. I almost, he gaveled me guilty. They have to gavel you guilty when they sentence you. I did almost sink right through the floor. Mm, Of all the things in the world, it just was probably the pinnacle of bad in that whole long time. So I went home and I began to do what I was supposed to do, which I had to report any time I left the house or any time I went anywhere that wasn't necessary. And... I went into counseling for, I I could not drive. I couldn't go to a grocery store. I was afraid somebody like a police officer was going to re-arrest me for another fictitious Mm -hmm. reason. So I ended up in therapy for three years with a counselor counselor named Glenn Samus, who was in San Antonio. And he technically put me back together. He gave me, he said, there's no way you did this, he said, because the fear that you, he said, people cannot manufacture fear. He said, you're absolutely terrified. And Glenn is the one who gave me the tools, I would say, to learn to handle. And I think a lot of people would tell you it's fear, it's shame, it's anxiety, because you've been accused of a thing you didn't do. And you have no, Mm -hmm. there, there was no proof. They never have found any proof. So it's almost, um, it's a mountain almost too big to climb because you see it right in front of you. And I have two licenses. I'm a certified public accountant and a certified fraud examiner. I had to go defend my licenses. So I almost lost the way I make a living mm. from this accusation. So Elliot took this law to the Texas legislature. Our legislature runs uh, January through basically May in every every spring and every odd-numbered year. So the legislative session, the 94th, was going to start in January. So I went into his office, and that's why I pled guilty, so I could talk about the case with, so he would take it. And he did. He took it, and the bill passed the next session. I testified to the Texas legislature, and that's on permanent video. Um, several people I knew testified for me, including members of the council. And in May, we had a law, and in June, the governor signed it into law, and that's House Bill 1338 of the 94th regular session for the Texas legislature. The governor moved the effective date up from September to immediately effective that June. And from the time the law got passed, it got used. And it was pretty mess, pretty much a unanimous passage. So I've, I've always had bipartisan support, and I've always had people who really listened. And it, But it began with with my state representative, it was, I was very lucky to have good representation. He believed me and he has known me a long time. And he said, I would never think that you would do something like this. So it turned out to be a very good thing. And Mm. that next summer we had a law 
in force. And that would be about the time I met Ann Forrest and then I met you. And sometime in that next year or so was the, and this was again the summer of 2015 when we began to advocate together. So that's that story. And in a little bit later, yeah. uh, I went national with it, and do you want me to speak about that, or yeah, is there anything yes. else? Okay. In 2017, I did the keynote speech for the state of Tennessee after they heard me speak at the NASHA convention. That's the National Association of State Head Injury Administrators in September of 2016. And I spoke, and I ended up the keynote speaker in Tennessee, and in that journey, I had done a worldwide speech for Wells Fargo where I was a contractor during this point in time. And one of my coworkers' mothers worked for Will Hurd, who was a congressman from San Antonio. He was not my congressman, but he called. And I ended up being invited to Washington that next June to speak with his staff. And that was the 116th regular session that we were working with in that year. So we began that, almost had a bill passed. I had, by chance, come across the Congressman Pascrell from New Jersey's office. And I was up there to meet with Congressman Hurd's office that morning. So I called and explained my story to Congressman Pascrell's office and ended up meeting with them that afternoon. So one thing I'll say about me is I figure – you know, I don't le tend to not do what I have available to do. I was in Washington for one meeting. Why not use that time and those resources? And that's really where what became our national bill, our federal bill that passed in August 2022, that's where that began, was back that far. So I'm still in touch with some of the people that I met along, the staffers that I met along the way, the legislative directors and staff that the different congressmen had. And we didn't make it that session, but then in May and June of 2022, the bill got reintroduced as uh, H.R. 6008, and we began to roll forward with, well, with progress, I guess I would say, and on a Monday night, very, very late, uh, the House passed at the Federal House uh, Congress, and uh, I figured at that time... We were pretty much there. And in August, I talked to, well, in July, I talked to Congressman uh, Ted Cruz's office from here in Texas and spent about 30 minutes on a conference call with NASHA and with his office. And in on August 16th of 2022, the Senate passed, the U.S. Senate passed the bill, and Congressman Biden signed it August 16th. So we were... And then we had a law. So then we had, that was what I said I wanted. I wanted to take the Texas law and make it available for the whole country because, as we know, mm -hmm. brain injury can happen anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I wanted that. And I had begun speaking in different states, and I had been to Washington probably five or six or seven times. Uh, probably about half of them were just my own trips. I would make a visit list of congressmen and senators and other people, and I would touch base to keep this. Even during the year that was so quiet, 2016 to 17, I would, in 18, I would drop by offices and try to remind people what I was there for and, you know, so they would remember mm -hmm. this law. 
So advocacy does not always have a lot of visibility. Sometimes you're simply continuing the conversation to right. remind people. Yeah. So that's that was it, and that became effective. And I am hearing good things. Bureau of Justice Assistance uh, is now working on getting this law used out in the states. They did a first meeting in November. Uh, and I it was just a, a Zoom meeting, and, and I attended that around November 11th. And the notes, and I think there's a transcript available, too, and the recording, which is nice. And it was very well represented, I think. So I hear they're moving forward with getting things into place in the different police departments, because my goal has been for this law to be used, not just passed, but used to, to help people. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mean... Let's, I'd like to point out, too, that at the time when you were pulled over, you were, what, late 40s, almost 50, um, a, a middle-aged white woman. I was 52. And I was you were, 52. You were in your 50s. Okay. Yep. <laughs> yes. So middle-aged white woman that got pulled over in, you know, Podunk, Texas, and, I mean, nobody deserves to be beaten, you know, I know several years ago, there was a gentleman in, I believe, South Carolina, um, who was killed by police. His wife was on, off to the side saying, he has a TBI, he has a TBI, um, and, you know, the police shot him. Um, so there is a huge need <laughs> for, I mean, you know, police reform is a whole other topic, but there's definitely a need for them to understand brain injury. And, you know, I mean, there's cases of police getting called to homes for mental health things, and some of those, you know, are TBI-related as well. And, um, you know, in your case, right, like you told him, I have a brain injury, and he just wouldn't believe you. And I, I know, I remember you telling me, because you were coming from a meeting, and so you had brochures in your trunk, and you're like, "Let me show you the brochures." And um, oh, I had everything know, how, because I was chair. I had binders, you know, because yeah, I was chair. And, I had to like, know everything. Yes, exactly. How did it become so escalated, right? Like, I mean, there's just no reason that this should have happened. Um, but you know, you you took it and you turned it into good. And I just admire you so much for your tenacity because, I mean, that situation could have totally broken someone. And you took that opportunity to turn it into good and, and potentially help others not ever have to deal with what you went through. So that's been a very good result. And that was my therapy was I told Glenn yeah. way back then. I said, I want this to be a national law, and when it is, I will be finished. So I was wrong about the last part because I you know, <laughs> keep hearing from people, and that's great. Um, but I did get it done. The thing I did not bank on was the PTSD that developed and I still mm -hmm. struggle with. The thing about PTSD yeah. is you can't – flashbacks happen and you don't know when and you don't mm -hmm. know where. So I'll add to the – the story to tell you the end of the PTSD story, which will explain a little bit. I was in Paris this past summer and I had gone out to Monet's Gardens at Givenchy and I had come back into Paris at night and Elton John was playing a last concert 
in Paris that night. So I was actually on the phone with texting with my daughter when I got off the bus. So at first, because I'm me, um, I thought, <laughs> oh, I'm in the middle of a street party. And then I realized that everybody around me was wearing flak jackets and carrying at least one gun. So this is June 28th of this past summer. I was in the middle of a street riot because a police officer had shot a 17-year-old driver, like an Uber driver, in one of the Paris suburbs. And the whole Mm. city of Paris was rioting. So I'm literally under the Eiffel Tower. And I can feel my peace. I can feel my grip loosening. So when I talk about PTSD, because I couldn't get over it, I've been taught pull off the road, for example, if you're driving and a police officer would get behind me, this is a real case. If a police car gets behind me, I have to pull over and let them pass. I'm that terrified that they're going to do something. Mm. So rather than try to talk me out of what I'm obviously not easily going to forget, Glenn said, pull over, call someone you know, get yourself calm enough and drive home to where you feel safe. And those are my coping skills. That's my toolbox. And almost all survivors of PTSD or some other kinds of mental illness, when you need to to pull back and get control Mm -hmm. again, it will be the same toolbox. So I looked around that night. I don't, my French is good enough for where's the hotel and I'd like a glass of wine. My French is not good enough for I'm terrified and I need out of here. So I looked around (laughs) this crowd. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) And so I looked around this crowd and this, lady with more diamonds than I've ever seen pulled, had a taxi deliver her. There are some condos down there that are just gorgeous. And I looked at that cab with that empty back seat and I walked the 20 feet and I got in and shut the door and I told the driver, I said, I need to get out of here. And he looked at me, he said, yes. Well, he meant probably so that they didn't beat his car up. I meant because (laughs) I'm about, I'm about to have a meltdown in the middle of this crowd. Yeah. So he takes me back to my hotel on the right bank, the Eiffel Tower's on the left bank. So takes me back through dark neighborhoods to avoid the riot, drops me at my hotel. I get up the next morning, the windows, there are, so I'm almost at the Arc de Triomphe, the rotary. This is probably a mile across Paris from the Eiffel Tower to the Arc. And that's how big the street riot was that night. That's how far it went. And I'm, for one thing, I was extremely lucky that that cab was there. And then I got back to my hotel and locked myself in my room and just, you know, then I had my meltdown and that was fine. But um, it was weird because the PTSD has made me feel that life was out of control. And it basically Mm -hmm. has been because while the brain injury caused it, the brain injury has always had its steps you know, and and a path I could see. And nobody has ever, after that one night, has ever thought the brain injury was my fault. Well, the PTSD is harder to see. You never know when it's going to hit. So that night in the middle of that crowd, for the first time since 2012, I affected my own answer. Instead of freezing and needing to call somebody, I got that cab. I got back to my hotel. I locked my door. Uh, And that was... This past June, and I knew that night, it's like I'm sure you know because you feel these moments and you know that they mean the next thing is going to happen. I knew that night that my PTSD, I had handled it, 
And to do that mm. in France in the middle of a crowd right. was enormously odd. So this is the first time I've told that part of this story anywhere on the air or anything. I've shared it with a couple of people at NASA, but I haven't told it. So as I wrapped that up, I met a couple of people who had been to the Acquired Brain Injury Convention in Ireland who had heard my name. So I'm. this is last July, so this is all pretty recent. Um, so I spent a little bit of time. I spent the summer kind of decompressing and seeing if this was just, you know, important or if it was really important and it, you know, was sustainable. And I decided it is. So I wrote a talked to a few people and started outlining some chapters for mm. to, to tell all this because it I got told, you know, you've got more than one way to tell your story. You can tell it, but you can also share it in a book people can read. You can consult and talk about the places that, as you said, the, the towns that don't have the knowledge, which is now what the law is going to be, helping to spread all that word. All these things reinforce each other. So the title for everything, to be different, uh, is not to be guilty. That was the tagline I used when I spent all my time mm-hmm. in Washington. That's how I would I would catch the legislators in the hall or in their office or their legislative staff, and I would say, I'm Cheryl, to be different is not to be guilty. Can I tell you why? It will take about one moment. And I didn't. I think maybe I had two or three refusals out of all those trips, and I made, I think, five trips to do that. And mm. now we have the law. So I think I think the title catches people, and it was actually used. But I think also it applies to a lot of kinds of disability or mental illness or other things that, that can be. A lot of people are different. And that's, you know, to look at people that they're guilty, to assume that you know what you're seeing without any proof is is not fair. And it, it marginalizes yeah. people, the survivors, and it surely doesn't help, you know, for example, today, our audience today is the brain injury survivors. Mm-hmm. But like I said, we can expand that to say that touches a lot of other people, too. So I think it's important. And then so the story isn't over, right, because that chapter that I thought was finished when I got myself out of that crowd and I had successfully navigated my PTSD. Well, now that's a, that's the next chapter to ne- successfully handle your PTSD when you have it in the middle of a middle of a riot that reminds you of the night that you were <laughs> yeah. arrested and beaten and be able to navigate out of that is pretty good self-control. So that, yeah. that's a successful example. And that's where I am now is, you know, I do not know what is next, but I can tell you I'm not finished. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously. That's that's the thing I think with many of us brain injury folks, um, you know, we're, we're never done. Um, you know, I get discouraged or I get frustrated or I'm like, I'm done, but I'm not. I still continue with my advocacy work, and, um, you know, I'm heading out there this March, and it's our first time back in person since 2020, and it's crazy that it's been four years. Um, I thought for sure last year, but they did not do it last year. Um, But, you know, it's just, it's rewarding, and you know that you're making a difference. And 
you know, if you can help just one person not have to go through, like, what you went through with a police officer, right? Like, all that work and so rewarding. So I, I applaud you for all that you've done, Cheryl. I appreciate you. Well, thank you. I think um, I think several things. I got your book from you when we were both in Washington. I had ordered it, so it's autographed. Mm-hmm. I want to give you a mm-hmm. shout out about that because it had just come out and you brought <laughs> books to Washington. Yeah. Um, the you're right about the advocacy doesn't go away, and that's that's good because we have new survivors going through this recovery and these efforts Mm -hmm. every year. We can't stop speaking because these messages are important. And I think it's odd, you know, to be, to have done this and realize there's still more story to tell, but that's kind of about hope. And I think hope is very important. Um, I listened to Brisa's um, podcast just to prep, just to see what the, you know, conversation sounded like before before mine today. And I was reading her bio and I was thinking she's the 1% of people, you know, to recover from the locked-in syndrome that, that she had. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing is you don't want to not hope. If you're any survivor's family or any survivor, you want to believe in a chance of getting better or an answer being found, mm-hmm. uh, but you want to believe in going on and, and that there's something new. And I guess that's what I think is I was able to do this. I was able to keep going, and it was hard. So what I've been asked to do now is kind of talk about my story. And I said, well, I've talked about the law and, you know, done it. And we're like, no, how was this for you? So this is this is that's what I was asked last summer. As I think about being a survivor, is there a personal side? And it was, yes, what do? So they were asking me for examples. And I said, well, in the middle of everything that was happening, I have quite a high security clearance with the FBI because I used to wire money and stuff like that. So I had gotten a consulting job for the Veterans Administration here in Austin. And I was so tired of being the insinuation that I was guilty and I had a drinking problem and I had been arrested and I deserved it. So I sat in front of those two FBI officers and they said something about, we're going to run a background check, which they run them all the time on me. And I said, okay. They said, is there a chance we're going to find anything? And I looked at them and this was the first time I ever did this. I said, I'm going to tell you what you're going to find. And then I told them and I said, and that's going to be been settled with the my successfully completing probation and all that. So that's what they found. But I took away the power of them making me feel bad. And that that's made me an even more open speaker because I can talk Mm -hmm. about how hard it is to try to do normal people things like have a job when you have something like this hanging over your head. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's worth the putting it out there. And so somebody said, is there any chance anyone can blackmail you? And I, this is the same two FBI people interviewing me. And I started laughing. <laughs> I said, no, I've said, I've testified to the state of Texas. It's on, it's archived. It's on video. It will always yeah. be there. I said, if you'd like for me to give you the date, I'll be happy and you, you can watch it. And they did. And that was fine. Uh, so sometimes you have to shove back. 
because the yeah. quote apparent authority and abuse of authority people that are already outside the normal stream of things get very easily rattled and i would say that about they get very easily cowed because they're already nervous they're already trying so hard to fit in and i would say that that's a typical thing of a lot of survivors so if i can make by by doing things like that which i don't think i've ever talked about that but if i can by showing people that i am that one percent that wasn't guilty that did pass this law or help pass this law and like Reese's one percent of recovering from her thing. It you've got to if you can put it out there. Take that chance and yep. you don't know who will make a difference too. Yeah. And it can be scary, um, but I feel like the reward is worth the the scare. <laughs> if that makes sense. I think you're right. I do think you're right. I think it's very important because a lot of people don't have a voice. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important to, and that's what I would say here. And of course, as you already mentioned, Texas is a huge state. When I was on the council, I would have had other conversations wherever I was living. It's important to bring those comments and those questions to the table. Um, it's mm-hmm. important that we speak for people that don't have, you know, a way to get the Austin to come to a yeah. council meeting or When I was in Maine and in New Hampshire, I took a trip to New England um, at the invitation of a man named Bill Roof, who was a big brain injury supporter for um, a family member that had had fallen and had a a concussion. It's really important, both, both here and in Texas and then in New England, he had moved back up there. That week was really important because it I got to speak to people. He said, come east, come east and let's see what New England thinks of what you have to say. So at that time, we had the Texas law passed, but not the the national law. But I had, I've always had good response from people all over the country, you know, and I give out my phone number and my email and encourage people to call me or write me. And that's been a really nice avenue because I realize that when I do get a question, it comes from real survivors or family members that want to know more than they do. Mm-hmm. And I think with your TBI tribe, you do a lot of the same because you've got such a mix of people in it. Yes. Yeah. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story today. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, how can they find you? My email is ckwords, W-O-R-D-S, the number one at gmail.com. And my phone number Perfect. is five. My phone number is five one two five eight five four five five nine. Cheryl, thank you again for being here. It's such a pleasure to connect with you, and um, just keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much, and I appreciate the opportunity. And thank you, everyone, for being here today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can always find previous episodes on most streaming platforms, such as iTunes or Spotify, or you can find them directly at facesoftbi.com. And you can also help support the podcast for just $5 at buymeacoffee.com slash Z. You can follow me on Instagram at Amy Zellmer, and also please join me in Amy's TBI Tribe on Facebook.
Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone, and I will see you in the next episode.